Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now today I'm talking to Roger Cheatham, who is a multi-award winning international speaker and philanthropist, which is a word I have trouble getting out. Hello there, Roger. Hello, Susan. Right. Um, you're just you're just recently returned from India. I think you've been talking out there, haven't you? That's right. Yes, I was honoured to be one of about 11 male speakers joining 376 female speakers speaking for the Women Economic Forum annual general meeting in New Delhi, India. Right. That must have been quite an event then. That was an exceptionally eye-opening event, yes. Very mm. good indeed, yes. Now, I understand that you talk about resilience, don't you? Which, considering I have heard some of the back background, the story um, of what has happened to you in your life, that really you've had to be extremely resilient, haven't you, to work through it all? I have indeed, yes. It's certainly not something that I've got a degree in or learnt as an academic subject or something like that. It's certainly a lesson that I've learnt through the school of hard knocks, as it were. Quite literally, isn't it? Quite literally, yes. Yes, yes. well, if if you wouldn't mind just explaining to us then, because the listeners won't know just what your background is, what happened to you. How many years ago was it now? Yes, the life-changing event that occurred for me, Susan, was back on the 9th of June 2013. I'd been a publican in Sheffield, South Yorkshire for the previous 13 years, Myself and my wife Claire had our notice in we were going to leave in four days because unfortunately we were about to become yet another casualty of the ever-diminishing UK pub trade and I found myself a casualty victim of a, a different kind when I took my beloved Patterdale Terrier dog Jasper for a walk at the end and unbeknown to me during that walk it was the last walk that I took as an able-bodied person as we got close to the pub on our return, there were three people unknown in masks and balaclavas wielding fence posts and baseball bats and they left me for dead in the road after a severe beating. And that was the life-changing event which began my journey of resilience. And did you, I mean, I, th- I think you still don't know who it was? That's right, Susan. To this day, the three people were never identified, let alone brought to justice. The reason being, each of them wore masks and balaclavas, so there was no possibility of CCTV footage or witness identification, and they all wore hoodies and gloves, so there was no fingerprints, hair follicles, or other forensic evidence. So for that reason, we still don't know who they are, let alone what the motive was. Did you, I mean, had you had any problems in the pub? Nothing nothing at all, no. I mean, uh, that was the the strange thing about it. I mean, sometimes your own sense of personal security is heightened because running something like a pub, Mm. unfortunately, you do have to keep the idiots out to keep the respectable people feeling safe and wanting to come back. And I can only think it was someone over the years that had had a grudge that had always vowed that they would get even. And then the pub grapevine being what it is, knowing that we were due to come out in four days' time, 
had realised that if they didn't seek their revenge there and then, they would miss the opportunity, and that's the only thing I can put it down to. Oh, dear. That must have been quite traumatic then. You suffered um, dreadful injuries because... um... Obviously, people won't can't see you because we're we're talking, but you still have to use crutches to get around. That's right. Yeah, I'm still on a pair of elbow crutches and will be for life. I have one leg three inches shorter than the other because of the bone and muscle wastage, partly due to the attack, and partly due to the fact that on top of everything else I was dealing with, within a week of being in hospital, I managed to go and contract myself MRSA as well. So, Oh, no. Not the uh, not the best of times. <laughs> That's a double whammy, that, isn't it? Very much so. <laughs> so they left you. You think they thought they'd killed you? I honestly believe the only reason they stopped is they thought it was job done, yes. I think they did believe they'd already killed me. Mm. Shame you hadn't had a larger dog. What on earth happened to the dog? I had been an animal lover, and I'm sure any of the mm. animal lovers listening in will understand this. I had tried to release his collar and let him run free uh, in the interest of his own safety above my own. Mm. Unfortunately, the attack was quicker than predicted, and the first blow was landed on the dog. <gasps> Fortunately, because the collar was partly undone, it, it finished off loosening the collar, and he ran off into the night. And he had no road sense whatsoever, so I didn't know whether he would survive that or not. But I do know that if he'd have stayed with me, he wouldn't have survived. Mm. And fortunately, I did find out from laid battered and bleeding in A&E the following morning that he had made his way straight back home to safety, unlike myself, for another three and a half months. Mm. Now, I was just thinking if you'd had a much bigger, aggressive dog, it might, you might have been protected, mightn't you? There's every chance, yes. Mm. But a little Patterdale, not not able to take on three masked villains. No, no, I'm, I'm quite all. glad that he actually got yeah, himself safe yes. rather than attempting to protect me because yes. the situation could have been so much worse if that had been the case. Mm, for him, anyway. Yes, absolutely. I don't think it could have been much worse for you. No. No. So you were how many months in um, recovery? It was roughly three and a half months. I was finally discharged from... Sheffield's Northern General Hospital on the 18th of September that same year from mm. being admitted just after midnight on the 10th of June. Sure. And what what were the specific injuries then that you suffered from this? Uh, the fib and tib in the right leg were so badly damaged during the attack that I was left in the road looking at both the bones staring back at me through the skin so they were probably the, the major ones at the time. Uh, I also had a broken bone in my left hand, a, a hairline fracture in my left ankle, a fractured orbital socket, I think it is, to the, the right eye. which the So they hit your head as well then? Yeah, the, the best layman term I could give for that is the right eye was looking like a, a dead fish on the bottom of the tank. Oh. Uh, and since the attack, I've gone on to develop type 2 diabetes and sleep apnea as well. So, yeah, they did it's, quite a job on me, it's fair It's to been say. life-changing, definitely. Completely life-changing for it, you. It really has been life-changing. And, and back then, in a very negative way, because back then I really did see myself as a victim of crime. Mm. Whereas now I see myself as 
a victor of crime and I also see myself as a trauma survivor rather than a trauma sufferer, which both sound like very small changes in semantics, but they both reflect a massive change in mindset. Mm. Yes, and um, working through it can't have been that easy. It certainly wasn't, no. Um, the, the attack itself, the the initial couple of weeks where I was waking up every morning in that isolated hospital room, having written a completely different A to Z script as to who the three people were, who paid them to do it, what the motive was for doing it. And if you can imagine anything worse than three people trying to take your life, when that's... You know, we keep picking a different three people each day, so therefore, over a fortnight or so, that three people suddenly turns into 50 people mm. who you've convinced yourself all want you dead. You have to draw the line in the interest of your own mental health, which is relevant to this week, with it being Mental Health Week at the time yes. of recording this. You have to draw that line and think, you know, the police will either bring someone to justice or they won't, but I just need to draw a line under this and move forward with life as best as I possibly can. And the difficulty, I would think, or one of the difficulties, obviously a lot after something like that happening, but one of the difficulties, I would think, would be suspecting people, you know, people who maybe had nothing to do with it. But you must, as you say, you'd go through your, through the list of people that you knew and trying to imagine if any of them had cause for it. Very much so, yes. Yes, and that yeah. must affect your relationships in the first instance with some people that maybe you, you thought you couldn't, well, whether you could trust them or not, but people who you thought might bear a grudge. Very much so. I mean, obviously I realised it wasn't immediate family or anything like oh, that. Oh, no, no. Who were the ones that continued to come and see me? And because of the nature of the incident, the very first night in A&E I had a policeman sat keeping guard of me mm. at, at the end of the bed, which sort of brings home the fact that maybe I'm not that safe after all. And you know, there was a there was protocol initiated where no one was allowed to come and visit me without a password mm. uh, that was only given to immediate family and was only given any further than that with my express permission. So th- that aside, looking back now, I understand that I was very safe at the time but that wasn't enough at the time for me to feel safe, having had someone, having had three people unknown, try and take my life from me. And I think, well, I, I can't imagine how that must have felt then, Roger. It must have been awful, and it must have been dreadful for your family too. Very much so. I mean, people often have sympathy or empathy with the the victim, the sufferer, of an incident like that, but there is also the vicarious trauma suffered by next of kin and close family. You know, Claire was having to find the time to come and see me day in and day out uh, because of what I'd been through and the isolation. I wasn't the easiest person to be around, and at the same time, all this was going on, our then 15 year old daughter Tash was studying to take her GCSEs at this time as well, so obviously she was majorly affected as well. Mm. Did did she do okay? Not as well perhaps as she would have without it all. Do you know, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge Tash at this point 
because so many 15-year-olds would have said, what's the importance of exams in the grand scheme of things when I don't even know whether my dad's going to live through the night or not? Tash was very different in her outlook was, I'm going to do the best I possibly can under the circumstances to add my exam results to the ever-growing list of things that my dad is incredibly proud of me for. And I sit here before you today, one proud dad, able to share with you that even under those circumstances, she left school with 11 GCSEs at grade B and above. So oh, my goodness. That was yes. yet another thing that proud I was so dad proud moment, of Proud dad moment, yes. Proud dad moment, that one, yes, definitely. No, that's, well, that is, that's phenomenal, even under anybody's circumstances, let alone under the difficult ones that you were going through. And then you said you caught, you contracted MRSA, so presumably you were quarantined in the hospital, were you, with that? Yes, the majority of the three-and-a-half-month stay was all in isolation. I think probably the first week I was in a bay with other people, and then once the swab results came back from a routine MRSA test and confirmed that I had tested positive for it, mm. I was then handed over to the team specialising in that aspect and moved into isolation for the remainder mm. of the stay. And I have now have to accept if at any point for the rest of my life I'm readmitted to hospital for any reason, it will always be in you'll isolation. You'll always be quarantined, yes, out of necessity. But then a lot of people don't actually come out when they've got something like that, do they? You're a survivor, Roger, definitely. Right. <laughs> Hence the the resilience, isn't it? This is uh, this is the the positive aspect that you've taken from it is that if you can overcome all of that, then anything you can achieve anything. Very much so. Yes, I mean the most recent audience I've spoken in front of has been secondary school children, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest. Since I started sharing my story, it was the audience I was most apprehensive about speaking in front of. And unnecessarily so, as they have been one of the most engaged, sponge-like audiences that I've been in front of. And the message I share with them is exactly the same message on resilience that I share with adult audiences that shows how dark things get. Mm. Not only can you get through it, you can emerge a stronger, more positive and improved version of yourself. Mm. And I think the story that I've shared with you and your listeners today highlights that I really am walking the walk, pardon the pun. <laughs> yes, <on> definitely. <laughs> well, yes, because I think um, obviously you were planning on moving because you were leaving the pub because you were you said you only had four days That's left. right, yes, just four days of our notice period. So, yeah, so there was going to be a major change anyway in where you were living, but then no one could have expected what happened on that awful night. No, absolutely not. But what I find inspirational then from talking to you is that not many people, I think, would actually say it it had had a positive effect upon them. But that's what you're saying to me is that you've taken a lot of positive things out of what actually happened to you. Very much so, yes. I mean, yes, I'm in a situation now where I have a three-inch built-up shoe. I'm on a pair of elbow crutches for life. I have a titanium floor in my right eye. I have type 2 diabetes, I have sleep apnea and therefore have to sleep with a CPAP machine each night. As it was also discovered, I was stopping breathing twice a minute, every minute 
whilst I was asleep. But despite all that long list of ailments, I can honestly, hand on heart, say life is so much better now than it is, than it was prior to the attack, as I have much more of a purpose now than just serving packs of Stella over the bar. I'm actually making, sharing this story in a positive way to make a difference to other networking events and seminars of adults wanting to better themselves and also to our next generation of influencers and decision makers as well mm. in school classrooms. So life is so much more worth living now. Right. So where um, you're saying you, you talk to schools... I know you you're very involved in Sheffield in networking in Sheffield, aren't you? I've been involved with speaking for networks uh, nationally in sort of mm. Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, and Kent up to now. I have a talk to give in Chelmsford, Essex next month, mm. and of course, not forgetting the Women Economic Forum in New Delhi, India, that I've just returned. That from you've speaking just returned at. from, yes, yes. I'm I'm sure. Um, Certainly, a very worthwhile message that you that you're putting across there. Thank you. <laughs> so, where do you see it going from here, then, Roger? What do you see the future? I think it's important that I carry on spreading that message of resilience, and it doesn't necessarily have to be audiences that have gone through something like that. In fact, mm. I wouldn't wish it on no. anyone else. But I think if you can get in front of a, a school classroom and share a story as powerful as that and then just give examples of saying next time they need to find the resilience to revise for an exam or test to do the homework and hand it in on time or to resist peer pressure Mm. when the mates are all asking them to go to the cinema or the local shopping mall or whatever it is when they've got homework to do and revising to do then I think it's possible to be made relevant and on a bigger scale to that, I think when I'm speaking in front of fellow trauma survivors or people dealing with mental health issues, if the story is powerful enough to save just one life, mm-hmm. then it really has been worth going through what I've gone through and doing what I'm doing now. Can I just ask you, you don't have to share this if you don't want to, but mentally then, how did it affect you? You said you were very grumpy, which would be understandable. But mentally, how did it affect you in the, say, the first year after this happened? How how were you then? I would say mentally, you're quite right to say grumpy. I wasn't the best person to be around, as I'm sure Claire and Tash would both attest to. In addition to that, initially, there was an awful lot of fear and lack of confidence. I mean, going from a pub landlord where effectively mm. my living was made by filling what was my living room with complete strangers day in and day out. I had no issue with that to the attack taking me to the stage where a couple of days before being discharged, Claire suggested going to the hospital canteen. I went pale, started shaking head to toe and broke out into a cold sweat saying, Mm. but there'll be people there. So there was certainly that aspect of, of my mental health was affected. And also for three and a half months of being in hospital, everything I'd dreamt about was to be discharged and just to get back to the sanctuary of home. And when I got back home, I discovered that the grass wasn't particularly greener as because at this point I still had an external fixator or X-fix drilled through the bones in my right lower leg in several places. And for anyone that's not familiar with an X-fix, the best way I can describe it is like an old-fashioned 
external TV aerial drilled through your leg in several places, which meant I wasn't able to mobilise or get upstairs. So my bedroom was also the family living room and also had to serve as my bedroom, bathroom and toilet, something known in medical terms as a triangular living environment. And I think it was at that point where I often state in my stage talk, I was laid there staring at the magnolia walls, reflecting my magnolia life, mm-hmm. where I pretty much wasn't an overnight decision, but one of those days, which was very much like Groundhog Day, for anyone that's seen that film, I was in a situation where I thought, you know, have I, if this is all life is going to be about, has it really been worth fighting to stay alive mm-hmm. and undergo six 12-hour operations in a three-and-a-half-month period? And I'd very much reached the, I wouldn't say the crossroads of my life, but very much a T-junction of my life where I had to decide to continue with that mundane existence, and it was an existence rather than a life, or did I find something positive to take from this? And I'm pleased to say over a period of time, even though I didn't know how I was going to do it, at that point I'd made the decision that that was the option I was going to go with, and that's what's led to... Having written the first book, Mm. giving talks nationally and internationally and hopefully making a significant difference Mm. in the life of others. So I didn't know. This is obviously I've not researched you well enough. I didn't realise you'd written a book then, Roger. What is your book called? The book is called The Life You Deserve, Surviving Trauma Through Empathy and Inner Peace. And that came about as at that time in that lonely family living room, I really did feel like I was the only person in the world that was experiencing that. Mm. And I did try and find YouTube videos on the subject, library books on the subject or whatever. And all I was finding at the time was there were some amazing books by psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, which I'm not going to detract from whatsoever. Some of those are really amazing works from people that have experienced some things that make my hair curl and I don't have much of it. (laughs) But there wasn't anything really written from the survivor's point of view and I decided that it was on me to actually write how I felt and how I dealt with things Mm -hmm. so that should anybody go through that in the future, there was something out there that they could refer to. So would you say that um, at that point when you were living at home after you'd been discharged, was that the lowest point for you? It was, and it surprises people because people think the time in the hospital in isolation for three and a half months would be the low point. But at least while I was in hospital, you'd got doctors ward rounds, you'd got them coming round to check your blood pressure and everything else every hour. I even joke that even though I had a lifelong fear of needles, I used to look forward to the phlebotomist coming round to take the bloods and replace my cannula every other day because it was just a different face. Whereas Mm. When I got back home, with all the right reasons, the extended family and friends thought they were doing the right thing by staying away because they felt we needed to rebond as a family, which is mm-hmm. a, an understandable belief. And from our point of view, we felt when extended family and friends had been so supportive in hospital, we couldn't really ask them to continue visiting on the same scale when I was back home. So maybe there's a lesson in there on communication. Yes, yes, I guess so. But also I think when you're um, you're being looked after in a hospital to a certain extent, 
it's fairly, it's a fairly institutionalized existence, isn't it? Everything's run to clockwork. The meals come, you get working at a certain time, and everything is very structured, isn't it? Very much so. And also, pretty much everything's done for you. I mean, I know they make they make people get up and walk around a lot more. They they used to let you lie in bed. They don't let you do that now, do they? In hospitals. No, that's right. Um, but I guess having had all the important things done for you. Then to come home as disabled as you as you were worse then with all of the contraptions on your legs and everything else, that must have been a really difficult period because you had to do for yourself then or rely upon family close family members that's right I mean I still wasn't physically able to do anything for myself even even the most basic tasks for sort of washing and toileting that all mm. required assistance, assistance from yes. other people. And when that falls on your nearest and dearest That's hard. Rather than when it's fell on medical staff who you know mm. take it in the stride because it's it's it's, it's what a, they do. They're used to it, yes. Then it was uh, yeah that also added mm. to it being the, the darkest period. Mm. Because um yes, I think having to depend on loved ones doing it, um you possibly feel that you're imposing upon them. And presumably then, did you, um, how were you managing? You'd been running a pub. Did your wife have to go out to work then or? No, actually at that point I wasn't able to be left. So my wife then became my full-time carer once I was discharged from hospital. Mm, Of necessity. Yes. Yes, yes, so hard. So at what point then? Was it because you were writing things down and researching? Was that what did you feel actually helped you turn it round from feeling as low as you were? Yeah, I think quite often when, when asked that question, a lot of people would refer to the sage that came into their life and made all the difference. And I don't want to disappoint your listeners, but that didn't happen for me. But at some point while I was laying in that bed in the family living room, looking at the magnolia walls reflecting my magnolia life, something kept going through my head that I'd heard years ago that a person will do more for others than they will do for themselves. And I have absolutely no idea where that's coming. I've tried to look that up and see who it's attributed to, and I can't find mm. anyone that it is. So I may just claim that one for myself. Yeah, why not? But uh, I think that was the the turning point, and reflecting on that, I realised that up to that point, the sharing of my story with medical staff had been very cathartic for me and really Mm -hmm. had helped with the healing process. And there came a point where I realised it wasn't going to serve to get me any further than where I was, and that the story was no longer about me. It was about the other people that I could help Mm -hmm by sharing it. So I started drafting the book, which took quite a while to do. And also at that point, I had visions of being on a stage and sharing it with people because as much as the book gets out to the wider audience and a TED talk, which is something else I'm wanting to do so that the message can continue to be Mm. shared whilst I sleep, then I don't think there is anything like the connection you get when you're speaking to people from stage or at an event face-to-face and they can actually feel what you're feeling, Mm. which obviously is lost a little bit in a TED Talk or or in a book. Mm. No, well, the um, interaction 
had you had you had you written anything before or was this a first publication I'd never written anything before I think like so many people it had always been a bucket list item that one day I will write a book in fact in the 13 years I had as a licensee some of the stories people shared with you <laughs> and some of the things which happened I always used to joke that one day when I retired I would write a book and the title would be too far-fetched because it's one of those situations where if you shared those stories with people they would say oh that never really happened that's too far-fetched but mm. it's often said that reality is stranger than fiction and yes. I think there's no better place for witnessing that than, than behind the bar of a pub mm. and maybe that's another book in there that you've still got to do every chance that could well <laughs> happen one day I think personally, because I'd find it hard that you're very brave standing up and talking. A lot of people, that's one of the greatest fears that they, that they have is actually public speaking, isn't it? It's, it's a well known fear that a lot of people have. It is. I've often heard it said it's, depending on which statistics you listen to, it's always featured in the, the top three fears that mm. people have, the fear of public speaking. I know there have been various surveys where, They've said people would have would rather be the person in the coffin at a funeral than the person giving a eulogy. There's such a fear of it. But for me, it's not a case of having a fear of being up there. I mean, I'm often asked, you know, you get up there, you share a story as dark and as deep as that, and you don't seem to have any nerves. My personal view is that while ever I'm delivering value, I have nothing to be nervous about. Mm. If the audience don't choose to receive that value, then there's nothing I can do to control that. And if I wasn't giving value, then I wouldn't feel entitled to be in that position at the front and therefore wouldn't take it. Mm. Yes, and it's given you a, a huge sense of purpose, I can tell. Very much so, yes. Yes, which is great moving forward, isn't it? It, it is. To have, like I say, before... Life was about just surviving. It was being on the hamster wheel, working 18-hour shifts and quite often struggling to break even, whereas now it's been out there making a difference mm. to people. And you I, can choose where you go and what and who you talk to because so. they can approach you, but you don't have to accept it all, do you? You're in charge. That's right. Mm. Which must be a good feeling. It certainly is. <laughs> Having had... A situation where you had no control over what was happening. Now you're in charge. Yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Which must be, must feel a whole lot better. It certainly does. Yes. That's been a privilege talking to you, Roger. If anyone wants to engage you for speaking, how would they contact you? The best way is to email me at the moment. I have a website which is currently under construction. So in the interim, if they email me... The email address is roger at rogercheatham.com. Okay, and I'll put that in the show notes so they can reach you that way. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you very much, Roger. So pleased to meet you, a survivor. This is Susan signing out from Inside Yorkshire.